listening to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. I'm Jackie Ferguson, certified diversity executive, writer, human rights advocate, and co-founder of the diversity movement. On this show, I talk with trailblazers, game changers, and glass ceiling breakers who share their inspiring stories, lessons learned, and insights on business, inclusion, and personal development. And last season was full of some amazing stories and lessons. So as we look forward to season seven beginning next week, I hope you'll enjoy some of my favorite moments from season six. And of course, if you hear a piece of a conversation that you've missed, be sure to go back and listen to the full episode. Thanks for listening. So we're entering into a new period for humankind where our societies are getting quite old. And this is happening because of two colliding trends uh, or mega trends. The first is that we're having a lot fewer babies than ever before. Our birth rates are really at their lowest point in human history in most of the Western world and and also in parts of the Eastern world as well. Uh, Europe in particular but also the United States, Canada, large swaths of Latin America, as well as most of East Asia. It's really quite shocking how birth rates have just plummeted from place to place. In fact, the only places you'll find really high birth rates right now are on the African continent and a few tiny little countries in in, uh, Latin America. But on the whole, birth rates are down. The second thing is, is that due to scientific innovation, social innovation, clean water, access to food. We have an incredibly high survival rate now through through childhood. Uh, many of us live into adulthood more than ever um, before. Um, and this is allowing us to live much longer lives because of it on average. So the super age is when one out of five people in a, in a society are over the age of 65. This is a UN designation, it's, it's accepted. But for a long period of time, it was really considered to be a negative. Uh, it was just like, this is when the wheels fall off the bus, folks. Like this is when <laughs> this is when all the problems hit us at once. And the reason for that is because for most of human history, you've had a lot of young people at the bottom of a pyramid and very few people at the top. The young people held up the few old people. Yeah. Well, today that's really squared off. And in some countries, that's actually inverting. So if, you, if we don't change the way we do our business, if we change, change the way we do our work, if we're not more inclusive of older populations in our economy, in our society, then that, that pyramid will tip over. It just it can't hold itself up anymore. Yeah. Um, so that forces us to challenge a lot of historical bias about older populations and to really be, be intentional about, about inclusion including them in work and in the community. Bradley, when we think about your organization, can you describe how your work with companies help them recognize the trends and and how do you help them navigate this super age and, you know, the changing demographics in the workplace? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest challenges is that this 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 my company requires a lot of education. Mm-hmm. And that's a big reason why I wrote the book was to get that education piece out there so people would understand what demographic change means for their bottom line. And for most organizations, we like to start with the workforce. Let me be clear about this. You know, a lot of these trends that we were predicting were coming, you know, 10, 15 years out just a few years ago, and then the pandemic hit. 
And the pandemic really is a truly transformative, a truly disruptive event for society. So most of these things that we were expecting in 2030, maybe 2035, happened in the past two years. One of the biggest mistakes we make is rush towards uh, superficial solutions that often do not uh, attack the problem at the roots and as a result can actually end up being more about how you maintain a system, a status quo, rather than change it. Mm-hmm. And so that one of the things that we believe is that we have to be willing to live with conflict often for a while, even sometimes escalate it, uh, as we also work to see what agreements are possible. We're not certainly not against the green where there really are agreements possible, but we believe these need to be seen in the context as a context of a longer process. And this is particularly true if you're dealing with issues such as massage, racism, homophobia, things on that nature, because um, there are a lot of agreements that could simply be made about a superficial manifestation that don't go out, get at what's really going on. I guess our obsession with neutrality and trying to stay a little bit detached and, and be objective prevents us from raising and engaging with conflict in ways that are actually constructive and conducive to make really institutional change. I think there tends to be a focus on things like communicating effectively or um, drawing on people through communication. And I think communication is not the same as connection. And I think communication is far more important and far more long-lasting. And because we are trying to focus on being neutral, we hold ourselves back from really connecting with the person on the other end of our point of view or perspective or the person we're in conflict with. And we end up with Band-Aid solutions or, or things that are that don't really address systemic change that maybe potentially can address the problem for this one person because we are finding a loophole or um, running around and making some sort of adaptation so that we make it work for that person. But the root of the conflict continues to be there. And I think in many ways that we need to start valuing more connection and seeing communication as a way of connecting and not necessarily as a way of trying to understand each other. Because I've also found that that prevents us or holds us back from caring. And I think caring is more important than understanding. We are taught what it means to be a really good teammate and value someone over yourself for a bigger picture. Like we don't really talk about that in the workspace, in any spaces. And I think that I like there were times I think back in high school, I was the worst teammate. I see some of the videos and I'm like, oh God, the 16 year old Jen was such a bad teammate. Like it, it just was so bad. And then think about in college, you know, wanting to be captain, but not fully holistically understanding what it meant to be a captain, just yeah. wanting the title. And so I think, you know, one of the things coming out is what does it mean to be a really good teammate? And understanding that maybe your role isn't at the front of the line, but it's at the back cheering for people and supporting Mm -hmm. people. You know, Mm -hmm. I think about at Illinois, uh, I was a volunteer assistant. I was like the lowest of the low on the totem pole. And the head coach then who's at Stanford now, Kevin, he was great with me. And, but also letting me know this is your role within the program. And Mm -hmm. I think many times people 
can't develop to be good teammates, the coaches or whoever it is doesn't tell them the role on the program. And and Kevin Hamley was great at being like, this is going to be your role. This is what we expect. But also, this is how your role, even though you might not be on the court, is going to help create this amazing culture. And people mm. like aren't really told of how much it can help change a school, change a program. You know, if you're sitting on the bench, you're not doing the things you want. And so I think, you know, being a really good teammate and if you take it to the office setting, what that looks like um, and the nuances of it, I think was a really beneficial lesson. Absolutely. And, you know, you're right. You know, there are so many courses that we take in college about learning how to operate in business, but being a good teammate should be one of those classes and something that, you know, is a competency because it's so important in accomplishing whatever, you know, the organizational goals are, sometimes you have to take a backseat. And that's, that's good advice for all of us. To be a good teammate, you have to understand your relationship to conflict. And so in my sessions, I've been talking more about conflict. And I think that we don't talk about our relationship to conflict, because I think we can attest that we have people in our lives who are great humans until it goes bad. And once it goes bad, you see a side of them and you're like, whoa, who is this person that has come out and is being reckless with their words? Or like, who who are you? Mm -hmm. But because they aren't used to conflict, they go zero to a thousand. Yeah. And so I think a part of being a good teammate, good manager, whoever, is you have to understand your relationship to conflict. When we think about it, right, we all are downloading that internet checklist of how to roll out a new change. <laughs> right. And it, you know, it just the same with like as a practitioner of DEI, everything is custom, right? It, you really have to get into an organization and understand how that organization operates, what the sentiment is, how they move. And if you're not doing that with change in general, right? You're you're downloading that checklist from the internet and going through the steps you're not understanding the nuance of, of each organization being different because as you said, the people are different. That's so important. I love that change leadership, not change management. Yes. Awesome. Nancy, tell us what some of the hardest shifts are to make in an organization based on the work you do. Well, I think as you just said, every organization is different. So mm-hmm. I don't know that there's necessarily a specific universal shift mm-hmm. that's hardest to make. But I would say some characteristics are any sort of shift that hits closest to the power centers inside the organization or that's emotionally charged or closely tied to someone's identity. And this can be, you know, we, I I think probably your listeners' brains are going to a few things that are, that might seem obvious in that regard, like equity and inclusion and diversity policies and practices, for example. (laughs) I was just thinking that. But also even things like an automation or a new software of some Mm -hmm. kind can be tied to someone's identity for a variety of reasons that may not be as obvious, right? So really paying attention to that. And anything that has lots of artifacts associated with it that reinforce the status quo. One of the reasons I started my consulting company 
was because I had a really horrible workplace experience. And that was the foundation of all four of my LGBTQ books was, this is how not to treat an LGBTQ worker basically, or an employee. And this was back in like 04. So this was like almost 20 years ago at this point. Mm -hmm. And it was just a really toxic work environment broadly, like with the beauty of hindsight and being able to kind of reflect back. It was just a toxic work environment all around. I just happened to be on the the receiving end of all the homophobic remarks. And and they weren't even like shy about it. Like my boss, who was a director, told me, uh, said behind my back, but with an earshot on like my second day working there, that I had the captain of the softball team led lesbian look about me. Like that was literally word for word what came out of her mouth. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a fun environment. And so I tried for five and a half years, I managed to stay in that company. Literally, it was from day one, I had this issue. And I tried for five and a half years to figure out how I could create, like change the culture from the inside. And it was just a completely futile effort. So Mm -hmm. I went to quit and the CEO was like, we can't lose you because I was running the marketing department. And he was like, we can't yeah. lose you. What what can I do to keep you? Like what's gonna what's gonna you know make you happy basically? And I was like, I want to market to the LGBTQ community. And at first, it was like a li- he's like, all right, create a create a presentation and come back to me. And so I you know took a week, came back to him, and I had a very clear plan for how exactly we would reach the community. And he gave me mm-hmm. essentially carte blanche to do whatever I wanted. Like he gave me free reign. I went to tons of conferences. That's when I got involved with the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce, with Mm -hmm. uh, IGLTA, like all kinds of different organizations. And what would happen is that I'm I'm out at like some awesome conference. I remember one specifically with the IGLTA. It was in Vegas that year. And I remember being at like the Ritz-Carlton at like some bougie event that they were hosting. And being like, this is so good to be around people like me. And I was like, in my mid to late twenties. And mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, great to just be around people like me. And then I came back to the office. And the second I stepped in the office, everybody was like whispering and talking behind my back because I was just out at the gay conference. And so that was what made me realize like, I am doing a disservice to my own community by going out and saying to people like, Hey, you should do business with us when I'm getting treated as poorly as I was being treated. So it was that lack of being able to reconcile what I was saying outwardly and what was happening inwardly that I was like, I can't do this anymore. I ended up quitting. And that's when I started my consulting company. And Latanya, at Change Coaches, your team helps clients create cultures of belonging, as you said, while also amplifying the voices of the only ones, right? So that they feel valued and engaged. So this is a two-part question. One, how do companies go about creating those cultures of belonging? And then two, as the only one or one of a few, how do you navigate the corporate environment successfully when your organization may not have made that commitment? Yeah. So first of all, how do you create a culture of belonging? The way that we work with clients usually will start with executive teams, and then maybe the next level down. And we will do some intensive coaching and learning sessions. We do one on equity, power, and privilege. And we, in that workshop, we allow clients to experience what these words mean. So we're not giving them these definitions and they have to figure out all these words where we actually take them through experiences so they can feel what this means. And we're not calling people out for their privilege. We're just, we're saying, okay, we all have privilege experience it. You tell us what yours is and you talk about that. I also take them through some team coaching and 
in that team coaching, that's when we, in addition to learning, we're exploring at the core of everybody's leadership, how much are they creating a culture of belonging? What do their structures and systems feel like? I also have them do like an analysis of their, their network and you know, who are the people who are high potentials? And I have them kind of go through, and these are just a couple of examples of activities, but one person, for example, in each team, every single time says, oh, I thought I was inclusive, but when you ask me who I call when there's a problem, it's all white guys, mm. right? Right, when you want that informal advice, who do you call? And that, so it's the, through a lot of these types of activities through like a coach-like way, I, I question leaders at their core and how they have have done leadership. And through that, through multiple months and years even, that's how we start building cultures of belonging. When leaders look at HR and go like, fix my problem, pay more, or give me a retention program because people are uh, leaving, I, I, I step back and I'm like, mm, the solution is usually within leadership. And if you're if you're engaging with your employees, if you're challenging them at work, if they feel they are doing meaningful contributions, if they have a path to development, if their diversity is celebrated, um, that would go way, way. It would be a much more sustainable and long term solution than fixing I mean, pay has to be right. That's kind of in the hierarchical of needs. That has to be right. But once that is right, putting more in that in that bucket is really not taking, no, not doing the leadership work that has to be done. Irina, that's so right. And, you know, there have been studies that sh- I think it was Harvard Business Review that did a study around that specifically. And what they found was that employees really want to feel a sense of belonging and purpose more than any other other thing that you can do, um, including their their salary. And so it's so important that you create those environments and cultures of inclusion um, and belonging. That's so important. I think you hit that right on the head. Fortune just published their um, best places to work, um, you know, list. And it's a hundred companies where, you know, we, we were named on the list and I'm so proud that we were. But as you read, as you read the research behind, you know, what makes these workplaces great, it's never paying more money. I mean, like, that's like, you have to be competitive. You have to pay your employees, right? Right. It's giving them a sense of purpose, Mm -hmm. is giving them a sense of belonging, is feeling like you're contributing to an organization, Um, all of, you know, developing in your careers, all of those things go way further um, than any other component. Ashley, can you share some of the trends that you're seeing in business and some of the areas that we as leaders need to focus on to improve? You know, to answer this question, I'll, I'll point first to an article that my colleague Allison Omens, our chief strategy officer at Just, um, recently wrote. It was an article about how this year is really the year of the S in ESG, social. Mm. Any of your listeners, as we mentioned before, know that ESG is, stands for environmental, social, and governance issues. And it feels like the S for social has been one of those areas that's just been, you know, like I said earlier, harder for companies to grapple with. It's yeah. a category that includes a lot. So that's maybe part of the challenge but it's basically centered around how companies engage with people, whether that be within the company itself, in the communities that the company touches or in society, you know, more broadly. Mm-hmm. 
because of the work that we're doing here at Just and because of all the other key players in corporate America, like investors who are pushing for more focus on social issues, I think that the social part of this, of ESG, is, is really the key trend to watch. I even hesitate to call it a trend. I think it's more of a new normal that people are going to pay more attention to these issues, I mean, especially with, with COVID-19 and the you know, racial equity movement really catalyzing, I think, this hyper focus on how companies are treating people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the advice in, in this article is really for companies to do three things. First, for them to define what S means to their company specifically and and figure out what it means to actually invest in workers and what that would entail. Mm-hmm. The second thing is really that you know the markets should encourage companies to shift practices toward making those investments. That means there's a role for stakeholders like you know investors especially but also customers and others to really push companies to focus on these issues. And then finally, you know it's about ensuring that capital does actually drive meaningful outcomes, meaningful change. And that's, I think, why this theme of transparency and accountability is just so critical. Something else I'd mentioned to just pay attention to is is really defining in greater detail equity. We talked about, you know, defining what the S means overall, but specifically, especially given my role, wanting companies to focus in more on equity. You know, we're lucky at Just Capital. We have a few different things that we're doing on this front to really help companies understand what equity means for them mm-hmm. and and what stakeholders expect of companies when it comes to equity, especially racial equity. One of the things that we're doing is that we've partnered with consulting firm FSG and the research and action firm Policy Link as part of this bigger group that we call the Corporate Racial Equity Alliance. And so the three organizations are on this multi-year journey to research and develop a set of corporate performance standards around racial equity. And that will touch multiple things like practices within the company, practices within the community the company engages with, and then uh, more broadly in society. So we're really trying to paint that picture of what equity looks like and provide you know, perf- you know targets along the way, milestones that companies can meet to get toward that, you know, that, that vision of, of equitable, being an equitable company. So definitely think the social issue overall, but then putting a finer pinpoint on equity is going to be a big trend for the coming years. I also think finding mentors that I can relate to is, was very important. Um, and it can be challenging in different industries and academic settings, but really having someone that you can go to with questions, if you need guidance on something, um, you're in these situations you often have never been in before, or you don't have family members that you can lean on because we don't have these traditional kind of academic or professional pathways um, and communities of color. And so a lot of times if I experience something professionally, I couldn't go ask my mom or my father or my aunt, right? Because they've never had a corporate job. And so having those mentors um, was really important. And so I think, you know, for me at this stage in my career, being able to serve in that role is something that I, I make time for and I think is really important. Um, but traditionally in real estate, it is it is tough to navigate um, a community where you're often, you know, have very different experiences in your home life, but also professionally um, and trying to fit into this industry. And I think a lot of people of color also are familiar with the term code switching and just kind of going between these two worlds, um, again, in a variety of different ways. And that takes a, an emotional toll um, out of people. And I, I think it's important that 
employers understand that and understand how to support their employees um, and also colleagues. And so, again, that's another motivation for my work that I think people uh, a, lot, a lot of times overlook. Thanks for sharing that, Nicole. Yeah, I think it's it's so important that people are beginning to understand and leaders are beginning to understand the value of belonging, mm-hmm. um, both from a, a recruiting or retention standpoint, from an employee morale standpoint, from a, a business, you know, an, an economic standpoint, mm-hmm. because people who are more engaged and happier at work are, you know, are more productive, more innovative, which is important. Right. But I think it's important that, um, you know, we recognize that, you know, it's, it's not um, anymore a situation where you have to just assimilate to the culture. Mm -hmm. Employees want to feel a sense of belonging and want to feel um, like they can bring who they are to the the workplace. So that's so important. We can evolve to embrace our common humanity, which is really at the root of it. There is no hierarchy of human value based on skin color or facial features or other aspects of uh, the way our bodies look. It's, it's, we, we have a common journey that we're on and we have to embrace that so that we can solve the big challenges that we face. And everyone has a right to live the American idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's just not a fair playing field right now. Absolutely. And Paul, what do you say to people who say, this is just too big a problem? Like how do we, we can't possibly fix this, right? I, I don't agree. I think there, uh, since the murder of George Floyd, there's been uh, evidence of a national movement of reparations and radical truth-telling. You know, in May 24th, I wouldn't have been able to say that, but we're almost, we're coming up to two years later. Since that time, there's been, as I said, local truth and reparations commissions popping up all over the country. We have legislation in the Senate and the House calling for a reparation study commission, calling for a truth commission that are ma- that are gaining momentum. We have uh, Republicans like uh, Republican Governor uh, Larry Hogan, who wrote a letter to President Biden and asked him to take action and establish a national federal truth commission to study the role of the federal government in perpetrating or continuing systemic racism. I have been part of meetings at the White House uh, with this administration since the transition and then through the administration where they're they're working on this. They know that this is an, uh, an opportunity for them to lead. And the opportunity really is, is that we could we could build a multiracial movement It would be black centered and centered in the black experience. And then all races can join forces and try and come together to try to heal together. It has to be linked to truth telling. It has to be building racial unity. It has to kind of lead to transformation of policies and laws and the economic system and all that, as well as healing. I think there's a craving, a yearning for us to uh, be able to live together in more harmony and more peace. We see that happening when there's crises, people come together. And I think, I think all people really yearn for that is my sense. And so mm-hmm. as a comic book writer and creator, I'm a black comic book writer and creator and I 100% own it. I accept it, I want it. I would never 
say, I just want to be a comic book writer because that that cuts off part of my my human experience. My human mm-hmm. experience is, yeah, as a man, um, but I'm a black man. And, yeah. and, and those things are linked together. They cannot be separated. Mm-hmm. And nor do they need to be in order for you to know who you are. Um, and I think that's very important when it comes to storytelling. We're meant to tell the stories that we're meant to tell. Mm-hmm. And you have to tell those stories from who you are. And I'm a black comic book writer. I love it. I love that. And it's such a good perspective, right? Because we as individuals bring all of our identity to who we are in the workplace, who we are creatively, who how we show up in our communities. And I think that's such a great point. Thanks for sharing that, Brian. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for asking. That's a great question. So, Brian, tell me what inspires your stories? And we'll get into a couple of those. Um, but what inspires you to write the stories that you do? Um, the human condition. And it's that that term has just stuck with me for years. And like even going back to like teaching and, and, and author's purpose. And um, and I would always teach within my English classes about the human condition and and how all stories are revolving around that is pulling from that. Um, and I'm inspired by that is what is it, it is what makes me love Shakespeare because I feel like Shakespeare, you know, a man, he he really um, like examined, uh, exegeted like what it is to be human in so many different ways. I think we were all burnt out. We were so in the moment and so present with the amount of work that we were doing that we didn't allow ourselves time to have downtime. Like my office is closed on Fridays, but we were still even working on Fridays in some cases just to keep up with the volume of work that was coming through. And so, you know, we kind of robbed ourselves of our four day week, many weeks. And I just felt if I was feeling this, I knew my team must be feeling it too, because I'm only great because of what they do to support me. Mm-hmm. And so the mental well-being was a benefit. Um, being present with our family and friends, especially, again, many of us probably traveling for the first time last year um, after, you know, not being able to do so since 2019. So having that time to just be present. And for those of us who were able to travel, to be able to get out of our homes and break up the monotony of, you know, those four walls that have been closing in on us. Again, I consider that part of our mental well-being. Mm -hmm. And then just experiencing and having new experiences. So, um, you know, somewhat normal life, if you will, Um, you know, still being masked and, you know, all that stuff with traveling and everything. But um, just being able to get out and meet new people and have new experiences, you know, just gave me the energy, as I said, that I needed to come back and and show up as my best self for, for this year. Wow. That's such good advice. And, you know, certainly we can all think about when it's time for us to take that break, right? And yes. Recovery is so important to the work we do, but especially in this space, because it's so emotional. It is. Right? Not only are the people that we're working with, you know, having those those challenges and those emotional reactions to, to this work, but we are human, right? Yep. And so we are having those those reactions as well. So I think that's fantastic that you prioritize that. 
Yeah, I told everyone this is head and heart work at the end of the day, yes. right? It's about empathy. It's about emotions. It's about in some cases, even sympathy. And so, you know, if you're leading this type of work, it can be overwhelming. It can be exhausting. It can be emotionally draining. I have all of those same feelings, even though I love what I do. And you have to give yourself that time to recover. Thanks for tuning in to some of my favorite moments from season six. Be sure to take a moment to leave a rating and review and subscribe so you'll be reminded when season seven premieres next week on September 20th. Become part of our community by joining us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. This show was edited and produced by Airfluence. I'm Jackie Ferguson. Take care of yourself and each other.